All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, as usual, uh, recording today, not as usual, from the giant tin can, otherwise known <laughs> as my air, <laughs> as my airstream. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, if you hear some birds chirping, that's the, that's the airstream experience. It's a very inside-outside sort of... Um, <laughs> How nice. The thing about the airstream, one of the many things that's so fantastic is the amount of windows is just... You really feel like you're outside. We're going to have to post some not. pictures. Yes, we will. Okay, we'll do that at some <laughs> point. It's very fun. So, um, yes, and, and this guy. <laughs> I don't you wait for introductions anymore. Yeah, why should you? Everyone knows who you are after two years. It's been two years, I might yes. add. Yes, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs> so, this guy, the notorious MCD. Um, <laughs> Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. I'm feeling very white right now. Yeah, I know. And I'm feeling very, I would say goofy, but that's nothing new. Um, Hello. Hello. Yeah. How exciting. Recording from the Airstream. Yeah. I thought you were going to say two years, but yeah, both those things are... <laughs> That's true too. I, What's more I got exciting? preoccupied by the airstream. <laughs> I know the airstream's very cool. A lot of people yeah. get preoccupied by the airstream. It is cool, not gonna lie. Not gonna uh, lie. Yeah, two years. It was it was two years during, you know, the, some of the most the worst turmoil in the country's history. So it feels like it went both very fast and very slow only because time is like that right now. Yeah, totally. But yeah, so it's been two years, and instead of deciding, well, we've done two years, that's enough. Um, <laughs> that would where, be funny if you announced that right now. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> to you. Yes. You're like, what? <laughs> but no, no, we're, we're going to carry on, and not only that, but our associate producer, Tower Sellsback has been working really hard on a, a website for the yes. podcast. And yes, yes. we don't know when it's going to be live. Uh, it will not be in the very near future, but hopefully in the next few months. It'll be a more interactive experience for listeners. So when mm-hmm. we mention certain work on the podcast, you'll be able to go, once the podcast is up, there'll be a uh, page for every episode. Like, so today, by the way, our guest was Paul Graham, and you'll be able to go to the episode, whatever this is, 40-something. and <laughs> 48. 48, and Paul Graham... And you'll be able to see the work that Paul and I talk about. So you don't have to go sort of look it up on your own. Yeah, Taylor's got a great sense of design and yep. uh, functionality. And uh, we've seen some previews and they look fantastic. So yeah, they I'm look amazing. Yep. yep. And also one other exciting thing is we're building in a forum page so that we can bring up topics. And if you guys want to talk to each other or talk to Taylor or Michael or I on the forums page, 
we'll be able to talk to each other that way. And we may even have some periodic Zoom events to talk about Mm -hmm. some of the topics covered. So just trying to bring it. It's turned out that the photo work podcast community is really dedicated and and very serious group. And we'd like to interact with you guys more. So we're working on that. So yeah. I think we should make avatars for ourselves. Exciting. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> I just had my headshot done after using Which a is headshot. lovely, by the way. Yeah. What a nice you. portrait. Yes. Yeah. We have to give all credit to the queen, Jillian Laub, who oh. made my headshot. Yeah. Lucky to well, know people who could make me look yes, better. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> I need a headshot. Oh, how about Jillian Laub? <laughs> I know. I know. Score. <laughs> Yep. I know you're green with envy. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Joanne. That was awesome. Anyway, so today's episode was with the great Paul Graham, and you haven't heard it yet because I just recorded it today. Um, (laughs) Yes, this is all happening in the moment. Take (laughs) my word for it. It's great. Paul and I had a really fantastic, really candid conversation about making work and about his career, and Mm. Paul's a friend of mine, and I love talking to him, and he's just such a smart, interesting person. You know, Paul's been around, and so he has a lot of wisdom. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't an accident that the last episode of the season was Paul. I really wanted to sort of end with someone who I knew was was going to be really special. So he delivered. Um, (laughs) And then we're going to be off for a little while while we both are very busy during August. I'm actually doing a retreat with my artists for a few days Mm. that I'm getting ready for. And you're doing vacation things and getting vacation time. Start again. And (laughs) But we will be back. We're not exactly sure when, whether it'll be the end of September, beginning of October, but we will be back with with the podcast and more guests yep. and more exciting stuff. So um, why don't we get to it? Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Paul Graham. Graham, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, or welcome back to the Photo Work Podcast. It's great to have you back on. And, you know, just because we don't want to assume that people listen to the first time you were on, if you could do a little bio for us of your, uh, where you, where you're from and all that stuff, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Thank you, Sasha. Yeah. I mean, and just to be clear, the first time I was on here was really on behalf of that ICP show, not as myself, right? As myself as curator rather than yes. myself as photographer. Uh, resume bio: I'm British, born in England, self-taught artist, photographer. Discovered photography while I was at university. Don't know how far down that rabbit hole you want to go, but yeah, go. You know, Whatever is art. interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I'd. Uh, Discovered art and photography while I was there. You know, there was a little section in the university library. I was studying microbiology, you know, very pertinent today with viruses and Mm -hmm. RNA and all that stuff, uh, how cells work and the mRNA, all that. And then in the evenings, I was doing night school. I was doing art because I wasn't able to do it at... um, 
at school. You know, once you get, we, we had this thing called streaming in the schools. And when you're good at math and science and physics, they don't let you, you're cross timetabled against art and mm. uh, languages mm -hmm. and, you know, things like that. So we, uh, I couldn't study art at school. So I did it later. Also, I mean, nobody I knew went to art school in England then. I, I, was, I remember coming to university at the age of 19 and discovering that art schools existed. And I was like, <laughs> what the heck? You mean people can go and study and do this thing that I'm doing in my free time? They actually get, get to do this full time in college with teachers? What? Why didn't anyone tell me about this? They, they kept it I, from you. They kept it from me. I, I like the ignorance and the 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 frustration I felt, mm -hmm. you know. And I was so I was so mad at art students then, and still am probably if I'm truthful, because they had it easy, mm -hmm. you know. Whereas I had to like pass chemistry and mathematics exams, you know, and do art in the evening, <laughs> in my free time, and and learn teach myself how to develop, you know film and the history of photography on my on my own and th these people were getting it on a plate yeah not fair <laughs> no not fair still isn't <laughs> but love photography so much that um when i graduated and I, I do did graduate have a good degree in the in microbiology i i just thought i'm, I'm not going to pursue this I, I want to do photography and i did and i you know just uh it was a time of punk, uh, post-punk, you know, punk, which went into after-punk. And, you know, a lot of unemployment in the UK. All my friends were in bands and were on and off the dole, the unemployment benefit, as it was called then. And, uh, you know, I just joined them in living on the sniff of a dollar bill and, uh, and eking out an existence between unemployment benefit and, you know, whatever else you could do. It gave you the free time to, to do your own, for them to make their music and for me to do my photography. You said uh, just now with a lot of intensity that you really, you fell in love with photography. You really loved, what, do you remember what it was particularly? I mean, for some people, I think especially young men, you know, the gear has a lot of appeal. Mm, uh, no, do, not the gear, really. What was it? Do you remember what it was that, you know, had such a profound effect on you? I, it was, uh, as I've said before, it was going to the university library and discovering this little section that was there for the anthropology majors. Uh -huh. there, there was a section called American Studies. And as background information, they had books on the FSA, on Walker Evans, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. on Dorothea Long, on Diane Arbus, Diane Arbus, excuse me, on uh, Lee Friedlander, you know, uh, things like that. And it was, it was sort of sociological and anthropological studies of America. But this, this light bulb went on in my head yeah. when I saw this, because I knew about photography from before, from, you know, we had a scoutmaster who was into cameras and taught people how to use the dark room but i didn't know you could say anything with it and then suddenly seeing frank or evans yeah. you know or uh, some moma catalog of of uh, um gary winogrand it was it was this gut punch you know that that resonated it's like wow you can say something with this mm -hmm. i never knew this and the magazines at the time, the main popular, you know, you go to the newsstand, all you'd see is like camera reviews and sunsets, gear reviews, right. sunsets, award-winning pictures of this, that, or the other, you know, wildlife moment. 
Um, you'd never see anything by that. But then I discovered this one magazine called Creative Camera, which was a British magazine that went for like 20 years, 25 years as a labor of love. It was gravure printing. It had all the best photographers in it. It had no gear reviews. It had, if they had lucky, they had one advert in the, to support them in it, one, mm -hmm. one page of, of commercial. And they had like portfolios by Robert Adams or Lewis Baltz. Every other month, there was a letter from Robert Frank in it. It was a sensational magazine. And, and that was my Bible that I looked forward to, my weekly my, or my monthly uh, fix of you know, education. In the, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things when you feel you intrinsically understand something, even if you don't have the academic language for mm -hmm. it, self self-taught, you know, you feel maybe, just maybe there's a chance I can do something like this, you know? Did you recognize, I mean, I think for a lot of people of certain generation, you know, the FSA work had a huge impact. I mean, it, it did for me. That's when I started photographing after seeing, you know, coming to understand that work and looking at a lot of it, I really fell in love with Dorothy Lang and of course, Walker Evans, but something about Lang just really yep. blew my mind. But do you remember understanding sort of the aesthetics of it? Or how did you think about the aesthetics of that work compared to just like sort of straight reportage? I mean, it's hard because, you know, you, when you talk about some of Evan's very posed uh, portraits of farm workers in the Dust Bowl recession, you know, um, that's that's a world away from my life, mm -hmm. you know, in in southern England. So right. I'm I'm looking at it in a different perspective to an American, right? Yeah, their their country and their history. The other thing I'd point out then is, uh, whilst obviously I saw Frank and and recognized the brilliance of the Americans, and we had moved on. I was this was the mid seventies at mm -hmm. this point, mid to late seventies, and we moved on and. New topographics had happened, right. you know, it, was, it just just happened then. Color had just begun. Mm -hmm. and then someone gave me this small catalog of a small brochure, not even the catalog, not not the election eve one, but a catalog by of Eggleston's election eve portfolio, and it had like three pictures in it, mm -hmm. and those were mind blowing. <laughs> you know, pictures of nothing, of a uh, a strip of road, a hedge in the wind, and a interior of some restaurant mm -hmm. and it was like wow this expansion this? of what is this what is this about yeah. it isn't such obvious you know obvious towing the line black and white mm -hmm. concerned documentary but at the same time it isn't arty farty you know mm -hmm. it was it was it was it was connected with the world it expanded the the landscape of photography mm -hmm. and that was that was critical to me is, do you feel like that's when you started thinking about the sort of combination of which, you know, you're really focused on in your output throughout your life, this combination of work that is about something that is out in the world mixed with a sort of discussion or investigation of the medium of photography itself? You're crediting me with way too much strategic, <laughs> strategic <laughs> foresight. I know that's um, not true. You're being modest. But. You just, you fumble your way through. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you, I, you, you try and keep it alive for yourself as yes, much as anything. Yes, you know? yes, of can course. You, can you think of a fate worse than like discovering one thing at like 22 years old and having to repeat it for the next 40 years? Right. 
Yeah. I can't think of a face worse than death, yeah. you know, yeah. of that. Um, so just trying to keep it alive, keep, keep moving forward, keep it stimulating in that way. So, yeah, I mean, I always felt that there was the perfect combination was something that did engage with the world at the same time engaging with the medium and pushing that forward. If you can manage to juggle those two balls at the same time, keep them up in the air, then that is the work that really stimulates me and does it for me. So let's talk about the sort of beginnings. Um, can you tell the audience a bit? I prefer that to me telling them. Um, there'll be plenty of time for me to quote you later on. But about your first three books and projects, A1, Beyond Caring, and, and Troubled Land. Right. So I was a young photographer. I was like 22, 23 in England. I began working in color, which was a bit transgressive then because the UK was, like most of the world, was dominated by black and mm -hmm. white engage documentary photography wonderful stuff you know some really historically some great stuff from bill brandt to chris killip you know mm -hmm. uh, martin parr was in black and white then and so on so i started i wanted to find a open project that you know open idea that gave me a way of um traveling and working and doing everything I wanted to do in the sense of not, not restricting myself to one to landscape or portrait. So I could do still life. I could do uh, portraits. I could, I could uh, do the sky. I could do the hedgerow. I could do the road. And I traveled up and down this. I found this one road that we used to go up and down when I was a kid because my father was from the north of England and moved to the south for work. And we used to go up and down this road called the A1, the Great North Road. So I started revisiting that, driving up and down it in a mini car, an old one, those, the original minis that my then girlfriend had. And I would sleep in the back of that mostly or in a cheap bed and breakfast and, and had this freedom to, this broad canvas to work on, you know, and do that. It's a, it's a slice through England, the length, the length of the entire of Britain, uh, which is, is the England and Scotland. It starts by the Bank of England and ends in Princess Street in Edinburgh. And it runs up as the entire north-south route of the country. And it's not a, a highway in the, in the modern sense. Mm -hmm. It was an old, it was even a, an old Roman road. So I went up and down that and photographed in color, large format camera. I mean, the nearest thing, if no one knows this, it's nearest thing is like Alex Soth did with Sleeping by the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. 15, 20 years later, you know, that the, the Mississippi is in it, but it's an excuse to look at the life and landscape you pass through on the journey. Right. And the same, the same with A1. And that was in 82 and 83, I believe. 81 and 82, sorry. And the book was published in 83, um, which I managed to self-publish. Then, if you want me to skip forward quickly, then I started working in, uh, Margaret Thatcher was... Uh, using unemployment, closing down everything as a way of taming the unions and reasserting power of politicians over the country rather than some sort of, you know, social contract with the workers. She wanted to exert total authority. So she was using unemployment as a bludgeon to break the coal miners and the steel workers and transport unions. And she succeeded, long short of it. And But unemployment ballooned and exploded. And... Uh, 
I was one that people caught up with. If there wasn't any, you know, the lines at the unemployment offices, you know, doubled and then doubled again, and they got swamped. And uh, I thought this has to be recorded, and、mm-hmm. so I did that.、Uh, I started just to photograph in my own office, and then I started traveling to other offices and photographing in those just to, to document it. And that became a book later called a Body of Work, a book called Beyond Caring. Which had a sort of dual life. Am I going on too much detail here? No,、okay? no, no. I'm, I'm. Yes, it's good. Well, the you know it was, it was weird because it ended up with this double life as a body of work. Because on one hand, it was documenting the trauma and the economic violence being done to vulnerable people by the government's policies at that point, and it was sort of picked up by social workers and was at trade union conferences and. Things like that in a sort of cheapo laminated set, and then at the same time, someone at MoMA, Susan Kismarek, picked up on it and put it in one of those new photography shows.、So、yeah, that's very trippy. Yeah, it, it, very bizarre. So, one hand, it's at the Museum of Modern Art, New York, as interesting example of new photography, color documentary, the UK,、uh, you know, sort of challenging the classic genre of.、Uh, You know how you image unemployed, unemployment, and poverty, and on the other hand, it was just being used for activism.、Mm-hmm. So it was very, very strange in that way. And that I got money from the local, the, like the the London government, which was being shut down by Margaret Thatcher. I mean, can you believe this? She literally said, because that was voted London voted pro, you know, Labour left wing, you know, equivalent of democratic policies. So Margaret Thatcher just said, "Okay, we're going to abolish local government in London. We're just going to shut it down." Just like if Trump had said, "Okay, no more, no more governor of of New, no, no more mayor in New York. I'll run it directly from、mm-hmm. Washington,"、um, and she got away with it.、Um, but in the closing months, they were throwing their budget at anyone and everyone, and I managed to get a small piece of it for publishing that book because it ironic, ironic, yes. And then the last triumvirate you mentioned three books there. The last one was in Northern Ireland, Troubled Land, which has just got reprinted by Mac.、Um, they, they've all been reprinted in the last two years, and that all three were self-published essentially. And and that I did at the same time as the unemployment offices, where I was traveling over to Northern Ireland, which was in some of its darker days of the the so-called troubles. You know the the civil conflict there between Republicans and Unionists. So. Whether it's a united Ireland or whether it's a divided country, and、um, you know, I went over there in my ignorance and full ignorance and not knowing enough about it and not being Irish, and just started to work there doing these.、Uh, and the best approach you somehow you you intrinsically find a way in, and the best approach for me, not knowing enough, not being not being a native of the of Northern Ireland, was to. To photograph from a distance, to do the、mm-hmm. landscape, to find a way in to say, okay, let's let me look at this from afar, see what I can see, gradually move closer as time goes on. But you know, let's let's take a let's take a, a, a distant view of it, and found a way to combine. They tread the line between conflict photography and landscape photography,、mm-hmm. and they seduce people in the way that landscape photography can do with. Green fields and blue skies and pretty clouds and you know Ireland is a very beautiful country, 
And the same time you look, think, oh, that's a lovely landscape. There's cows over there and they're And then you look closer and realize, oh wait, there's an army helicopter or there's mm -hmm. some troops hiding over here. And then you realize, wait, I've been tricked into looking at a conflict photograph, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that I found was a really interesting, you know, way of imaging it compared to what the press were doing then. As you said, Mac just reprinted this trilogy of books. Accidental trilogy, I Ac should say. Yes, no, I know. wasn't the plan. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. It's sort of a trilogy of your early work, right? Yeah. I assume you feel very proud of the work or you wouldn't have wanted Mac to reprint it. But I'm just curious, like, how it feels to, you know, have a spotlight shown on work that's that's so old and did you grapple with anything did you was there anything you wanted to change like i'm just curious how you sort of felt hmm. about it um and and if, yeah it's a fair yeah fair question i mean it's for so a1 is over 40 years old now right some of the pictures in that which is so first of all is the the, <laughs> the cold you know, hard slap in the face of, oh my God, you're, you're old. <laughs> you know? Something you did when you were 22 is now 40 years old. My God, what happened? How did time collapse yeah. like that? And yeah, it would, uh, but at the same time, you know, there's nothing that's that embarrassing in there. It's not like, you know, I did, <laughs> is that the bar? Uh, <laughs> nothing. To yeah. That. You know, there's, well, there's some people would love to bury some of their early work, right. you know, and there's not that, not that, um, the strangest thing, Sasha, is watching history come, time come along and take your work and carry it off into down the time tunnel and it becomes historic documents mm -hmm. of another era. Mm -hmm. And that is like watching your, I guess it's like watching children grow up mm -hmm. and become adults and you think, oh wait, you're no longer dependent on me and I don't control you anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, well, that's a really and, good um, analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly you realize, you know, that the unemployment in the early 1980s at the time of Margaret Thatcher or the A1 road, you look at the cars, you look at the price of gas, you look at the you look at the housing or the clothes or the haircuts and you realize, geez, you know, and, and that's a little it's great in one way, but it's a little sad in another because and I've discussed this with Stephen Shaw, where you people start looking at your work and loving it as a exercise in nostalgia yeah of course and yep. it ne and it never was that you weren't you weren't doing an exercise right. in nostalgia you know right well, people look at eggleson's pictures and think oh look at the look at the coca-cola signage look at the mcdonald's wrappers isn't it so amazing and those were contemporary things in their time right it wasn't that no um, for sure so yeah that's yeah. sorry go on no so that's the, the sort of tinge with sadness you know yep. of seeing seeing that that rose tint you know appear on things in that way yeah but at the same time the books that i couldn't give away for love nor money you know the original a1 book was six pounds mm -hmm. actually it's five pounds 95 mm -hmm. which is uh <laughs> currently about eight dollars and nobody wanted it and, right and then suddenly it's like it's like you know well, three thousand you became paul graham so well, whatever. Um, so, <laughs> so, no, I know what you mean. I mean, you know, I get sent a lot of work from the 60s and 70s by people who want me to represent it. And, you know, and I know when I look at that work, I mean, I have to put aside the nostalgia factor is so seductive that a picture can seem really fantastic. You have to sort of transform it in your mind into a contemporary picture 
and then think, is it a good photograph? Like you, it's hard to get through that nostalgia stuff. It's really, I mean, I find that way when right. I look at old movies. Uh, watching an old movie from the 40s, it's in black and white. The clothes are totally different. The men are all wearing suits and fedoras and they're talking a certain way. And I'm thinking, this movie is so fantastic. And then sort of at a certain point, I'm like, Actually, you know, other than the cool clothes and whatnot, the movie's terrible. Uh, okay, Sasha, but speaking as your accountant and your advisor, would yeah. he recommend? Because nostalgia sells. Yes, it does. I know. It does. <laughs> it, it, it does. There's no question about it. I mean, it's very, it's confusing. Yeah. But ultimately, you want to know that as, you know, we're talking about that the, the work is is good, not because it's yeah. patinaed. But right, good and off it of its time. Yeah, good, good in its time. Yeah, that it was maybe it was overlooked in its time or whatever. Um, you asked me if I would change anything. Yes, of course there would be the odd picture I would take out, and the odd picture I look when I look through the next thing. Why wasn't that in a troubled land picture or an A one mm -hmm. picture? I think why didn't I put that in? But I don't want to do that. I don't. I don't want to, and I don't personally approve of this reassessment that people do, where they you know completely reassess their early work mm -hmm. and throw in a bunch of new pictures right. and yep. re-edit the whole book. I, I just think you ought to accept that the decisions you made there and then and, and I, keep I, with it. I agree. Yeah. You did an interview for that was in Aperture in 2010 with Aaron Schumann, and he says to you in this, in this conversation you're having that he often shows um, students A1 in the same lecture with the Americans and, and Stephen Shore, you just mentioned, Shore's Uncommon Places. And he says that the students who are mostly British often find it strange to see what happens to that visual language when it's applied to something that isn't as exotic to them as the American landscape. So meaning, uh, right. meaning A1. And you said something I really love. You said, but isn't part of photography about realizing the exotic within your own life and landscape and recognizing the power and importance of it, the extraordinary of the ordinary. When I get stuck, I tell myself, relax, it's everywhere and everything. It's all around you and you just have to let it speak to you. It's not about having to cross the great American West or the deserts of China. You don't have to do that. It's right in front of your face. All you have to do is relax and breathe it in. And that's just one of my favorite things that anyone's ever said about photographing out in the world uh, and nice. I completely Thank agree you. and I know I should, that's I your ethos. Well, I should listen to that again because the pandemic has been brutal, you know, so on on creativity and uh, I, should, I should take that back on board myself because it's been a rough old few years, you know. Yeah. To, especially for photographers who are going out in the world. Yes. Where, People, people are told to keep away from other people, not to trust, and everyone's right. wearing a mask. And any picture you take looks like it becomes a pandemic picture. So it's been been very tough, you know, the last few years. So that's good to have my own words echoed back to me. Thank you for that. So when did the art world start to sort of take notice of you, and what and what did that feel like at, at the time, and what does it what does it feel like now? <laughs> Well, the old world isn't interested in me that much right now, but um, yeah, at the time, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was troubled land. Did it? I was very lucky in the sense that I was I did get discovered by a broad art world gallery, the someone who represented painters, sculptors, and so on, mm -hmm. called Anti Reynolds, and and in fact, some troubled land pictures were put in a group show, and I I went to that group show, and I was. 
ignorant and didn't know how anything worked. And I was at the show and I thought, I'll get a glass of wine. And I saw this man wearing a suit across the way, uh, the, the, the room. And I went up to him and I said, hello, can I have a glass of white wine, please? And he said, um, I'm not the waiter. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm Anthony Reynolds. I'm an art gallerist. And you're Paul Graham, and I quite like your pictures. I, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I thought you were the waiter. I said, yes, no, I'm not. And, uh, and here's my card, and would you please get in touch with me when you, you know, in the future. And um, I think I lost the card or something. But anyway, I bumped into him again about three months later, and he said, you never came to see me. And then I wised up and went to see him. And then we, we did a show, uh, you know, a couple of years later. And he really helped me, you know, when uh, he, you know, took my work to to art fairs. And so I was in a broad gallery and I was extremely lucky in that way, you know, of being in um, being in, in the art world in that way. And being represented by a gallery and, and being seen at Art Basel or whatever it would be then, because there wasn't Freeze or Miami then. That was a very fortunate thing. And having a gallery represent you, we didn't sell much. It was very tough times, you know. He was a loyal gallerist, uh, still is. He's, he's sort of retired a bit now. But um, very lucky in that way to, to have that. But at the same time, you know, still hard to make a living to survive out of it. I was, I was living in shared accommodation with, with four or five other people, flat sharing till I was 40 years old. That's how, you know, because that was the only way economically I could survive. And what body and, of work um, changed that? Troubled land was what he saw and picked up. Strangely, the the, right. the pictures, this this combination between landscape and and conflict photography was was strangely sold quite well. That you know, and obviously in America, I was represented by a gallery called PPOW. Then mm -hmm. they picked up and sold some. And, and America has this obviously, especially East Coast America has a big relationship with Ireland and uh, the Irish American community and. And those pictures sold reasonably well. Mm -hmm. They weren't some runaway success. And photography came in then. That was when Gursky Struth all had uh, roof all sort of broke through the Dusseldorf crowd. Yep. And photography was, was, you know, how these waves come and go yep. in the art world. And photog photography had its little wave then in the late 80s and uh, was in fashion for a while. Uh, yeah, so that worked then. Uh, what changed really for me was much later was uh, Shimmer of Possibility mm -hmm. really was the one that sold, you know, in terms of sales and actually making me make a decent living was was uh, some of American Night, but mostly Shimmer really was the one that... Do you um, want to just describe uh, that body of work to folks? Yeah, traveling. I, you know, I was free. I'd moved to America then. I'd shifted. I'd... I'd relocated to the United States. I was, I mean, I just shoved all my stuff in storage in London, came over, rented an apartment. I had two suitcases. I was free. I was liberated, mm -hmm. un unshackled from belongings, you know, and um, able to travel around. I, I met a friend and I said, oh, I'm thinking of going on a road trip, you know, traveling a bit. I don't want to do the great American Frankian road trip, but, you know, just to, just to see the country a bit while I can. And he said, do it while you can. You're, you, you know, you don't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was single. I had two suitcases. I had no belongings, no mortgage to pay. Right. And um, so I did, I jumped in a car, you know, I'd, I'd rent a car and, you know, return it to Hertz three weeks later with 6,000 miles on the clock. Right. You know, and they'd be like, what the heck did you do? <laughs> <You know? laughs> what did you do to our vehicle? <laughs> 
uh, I just drove it to the Rockies and back <laughs> in the last two weeks, you know. So I traveled around the States and the, so Shimmer, I unpacked this way of working of these small stuttering sequences of looking at people. They're not single pictures. They were Some are single pictures, but most are stuttering sequences of, you know, a moment arriving, sharing a moment, either someone sitting in a bus stop eating eating a takeaway food or a woman scratching lottery card or a man giving me directions or a, a garage at sunset, you know, just looking around at the, at the landscape and the, and the forecourt of the garage. Just, you know, it's basically guiding people through this, seeing the flow of moments, the flow of time arrive, sweep around you and depart, look around. So the lovely thing about it, they work on their own as, as artworks, but they also work as sort of like educational guides through the moment of seeing, rec recognizing the beauty of the everyday as that quotation you just you, you mm -hmm. read back to me from, from the aperture, as seeing the everyday arrive, the wonder of that swirl around you and and disappear off. And it was quite a, uh, a breakthrough in that way. I mean, it wasn't unique. A few other people were working vaguely in that way with multiple pictures, obviously, even going back to Dwayne Michaels and so on. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky, and I was working with Michael Mack then, right. who wasn't Mack, Mack, Mack Books. He was Steidl Mack with Gerhard Steidl. And as a huge labor of love, they did this. I wanted I wanted to give each set sequence or pair of sequences their own dignity, so they had their own hardback volume. And we did this, it ended up with 12 hardback volumes in a box. And that is more commonplace now, but it's pretty unique then to do this sort of expanded multi-volume thing. I covered and that box of books, by the way, but so. Oh, we'll have to make some sort of. Oh, okay. We'll make a trade. Let's, yeah, we'll, yeah, let's, let's make a trade. I'll give you one. I have some sitting in my basement somewhere. Okay. Yes, you can have that. I'll take you for yeah, pancakes. Yeah, I just, um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds good let to me, me. Just tell the, let me just tell the listeners i'm teasing with paul because if you try and buy this it's about i think it's about thirteen hundred dollars now but um which is the only reason i you, don't own it because it's just such a beautiful collection thank you yeah it was it was very good and moma picked up on it susan kismarick again i mean this is now 25 years or 30 years after beyond caring was mm -hmm. in new photography three and I got a small, not small, a one-person show at MoMA with that work, and did a, we did this perfect little installation in the photo area there, which I was very pleased with. And um, Pace McGill came to see me, and they approached me, and Peter McGill, then in his height of his powers, he was representing Frank and so many great photographers, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I started working with him. And that must have been life-changing. I mean, I don't want to bog yep. you down in the sort of gallery world stuff, but I do think that sort of the trajectory of a career is interesting and in how it affects your life and lifestyle and, you know, what you can and can't do and what you feel the freedom to do and the burdens that come with that. Because, of course, you know, it's not without, I mean, I'm making an assumption here because you and I, <clears throat> even though we're friends, haven't talked to you about this, but I... You know, I assume that certain burdens come with being picked up by a big gallery like Pace McGill. Yeah. I mean, you. the one salutary warning I have to give people is 
you will become flavor of the month for that month mm -hmm. or that year. Yep. Three years later, you know, all the music, you know, if you've got a good gallery, they'll position your work in this museum and that museum and this collection, that collection. And then their Rolodex runs dry. The museums have all got you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might, you might have a purple patch, as we call it in England, for a couple of years. And then everybody's, oh, we've got them. Tick, tick that box. Right. And it's going to slump, you know? Don't think, oh, wow, I've had a... I've made $200,000 this year. Everything's, I'm going to make this for the rest of my life. No, you're not. You know, it does. Ask Gregory Crutes and ask Alex Soth. Um, <laughs> you know, it dips dramatically. Yep. You become the hot shit for a while and then you're like old news. Yeah. Very quickly cool. So the, or the art world turns and they're interested in something else. You know, they're interested in a whole other, a whole other, uh, the, the wind shifts and, and photography or what you do is, is, is old school. And there's so, just so you know, much art I, available. I mean, I, I, I think that young artists don't understand, and maybe if they understood, it would be too crushing. And so there's a certain deliberate, you know, mm. um, shunning of this reality. But the amount of, as an art dealer, I, I tell people this all the time, my clients have endless options. Like it is. Right. So to close a deal is so hard because of the amount of options they have. It's not like, mm. you know, trying to find a mezzo-soprano to sing at the opera house. And there's right now in 2022, there's five great mezzo-sopranos. Right. Plus, ph photography isn't unique. Right. So they can always stall on the decision or, you know, maybe right. some That's rare right. vintage yes, print Yes, thank you for saying that. They can that. stall That's on right. the decision. Right, because there's editions. Yep. No, it's they hard to create pause. urgency. You know, oh, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not, you know, unlike a painting or a sculpture, it's like, get it or it will be gone. It's like, you know, oh well, you know, it's edition of five. Right. I'll, I'll, <laughs> right. I'll just, I'll just stall this for a while. Yep. You know, uh, it is hard. You know, and as I've explained to other people who are, you know, have a nice tenure teaching job, and that to make the equivalent of a professor with pension contributions and healthcare, you have to be pulling in, you know, a lot of money. You know, every year mm -hmm. in, year out. To, before you give up that professorship, and the, the, a much better system is the German one, where you're sort of a, a the artist is honoured. You know, they're honoured to have you as the practicing artist in the in the school, and you're expected to do some teaching, but very minimal because they're just in the same way that they're. Funnily enough, there are in other American, you know, Ivy League things with there's you know honorary law professors who are expected to carry on and, and, and they bring esteem to the institution by being there. We don't really have that so much in, in the art world mm -hmm. of photography. Yeah, I don't want to dissuade people because obviously it's, I, I you know. Well, you have to I love have it. I have my purple patch. No, you, yeah, ha you have to yeah. love it. I mean, the, the, I think the bottom line of what we're talking about is not to dissuade people, but it's just about doing it for the right reasons. And, yes. you know, making not money from money. it is not the right reason. It's not that it's wrong of you to want to make money. I mean, that, of course, there's nothing dishonorable uh, or jaded or anything negative at all about wanting to make money, help you out, help you keep going, etc. But you really just have to love making work you have to love the process or it will be too difficult it's just a, yeah. a, a fact and okay on that yeah. gloomy note let's let's move on so 
I'm going to quote you again. Any sentient photographer has some idea of what they're hoping to find, but you have to be open to what the world throws back at you and engage with how it challenges and transforms your idea. That's the beauty of the medium. That's its unique quality. And for me, that's why I mostly admire photographers who go out and deal with the world as it is. And somehow, through liquid intelligence and sensitivity, they dance with the world and it responds to them and they create these wonderful bodies of work. What would you say is the best example of that way of working throughout your career and your bodies of work? I mean, is it, is it just always like that? Or is there one example where you went out, maybe you thought you had some idea and something, the world just said, no, let's do it this way. And you, you went in that direction. Well, it would be any of the three American bodies of work, because mm-hmm. somehow I made another accidental trilogy of American works, mm-hmm. the American <laughs> Night, the, the white, the whiteout pictures, and then Shimmer, and then the, the present, the New York Street pictures. Which I were mean, all very much dealing was, with the medium of photography, which is something I asked you about early on, right? Right. Both. Yes, exactly. With, with the United States with everyday life in the United States, uh, uh, which Shimmer does, and, and with the, the dispossessed in the United States, which American Night does, but at the same time deal with, as you say, with the, the medium, of, with an exploration and a loving exploration of the medium itself, mm-hmm. of how it operates. So American Night, where I was, I was very new to the country, and I was like just like a, a gawping tourist walking mm-hmm. around thinking... <laughs> Wow. But at the same time, realizing that this freshness, this this naivety and this innocence only lasts so long. Mm-hmm. You know, right, you're in course. a new country, you're, you're seeing fresh eyes before the, the, the jadedness begins to cloud over your mm-hmm. vision. So I was there and I was like shocked at the how, you know, we, you know, just walking past the poor and the dispossessed, which were usually either black or Hispanic people, nearly always, not necessarily homeless, working poor. You know, and just traveling around the compass points, you know, west, north, east, south, you know, uh, finding the same situation and how we, you know, how you can edit them out of your vision. You can decide not to see it psychologically Mm -hmm. because it's too painful. It's painful to see it. And you, you know, you want to carry on with your life and you don't want to admit that, you know, there's someone struggling beside the road there or or walking to work because they can't afford a car. Or a bus fare, right. you know, and uh, yeah. So the breakthrough then was recognizing that and coming out. I think I, in American Night, the case was going to watch a movie at lunch, in the afternoon and coming out of a theater in in Memphis through the side door, through the exit, and walking out into blinding sunlight and and seeing this guy walking across the empty car park and and being you know when you walk out into light sunlight out of a darkened theater you can hardly see Mm -hmm. and this brilliant white light and realizing that this was incredible you know this moment Mm -hmm. and how do i get that so that was the world teaching me how to make the pictures and listening to that you know and working so working with very overexposed that's all they were overexposed pictures Mm -hmm. you know not not um, not all of them but and how that yeah not all of them, yes, because then, you know, it's, there's, there's a color pictures of, of new housing, the sort of opposite of these technicolor pictures and inner city New York stuff, a few, a little section in the middle of that. But yeah, and, and that, was, that was recognizing the photography, teaching me that, you know, when normally do people, people do uh, the dispossessed or the poorer, you, you work in the shadow realm, the mm-hmm. quarter tones of photography. And suddenly, what's wrong with the other end of the 
high, the tonal scale. Mm-hmm. Why not work in this this upper register of white out invisibility, which mm-hmm. of course mirrored the way that we we want to make these people invisible. So that we don't we we wish not to see this because it's too painful or it's too you know it's too difficult to 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 bear witness to other people suffering in that way. So that was that was listening to the photo- photography and. And having the strength to defend it when other people thought it wasn't, it was a gimmick or a trick or it wasn't mm-hmm. right, you know. And um, some people yeah. even misunderstood, I don't want to say misunderstood, that's not correct. Some people's interpretation of the middle class and upper middle class housing pictures, the McMansions and whatnot, um, that were not shot that way, that were shot more straight on, was... Yeah. Was that it was sort of a condemnation. But you've said, and I, I, I find this just really interesting and also very moving. You, you've said that because you grew up in that sort of middle class housing, you actually don't feel that way about those places, that they're, that's more complicated for you. That, you know, so it, it, it's interesting with American Night because I think there was a, a lot of crossed lines between (laughs) between what you were thinking and uh, I mean I think this is a body of work a lot of people have fallen um, in love with but I do think there were it seems like there was some real um, yeah cross there's some struggles there yeah yeah Yeah, some struggles for some people yeah no I mean I didn't obviously I grew up in England we didn't have McMansions then but I did grow up in modern I grew up in a new town Harlow Newtown where it was a purpose designed completely you know it's like they took greenfield they took countryside and built a town on it Mm -hmm. post-war and so i grew up surrounded by modern housing so there was that echo of nostalgia for me in it but obviously what i was addressing principally in america was that this was these were dream homes Mm -hmm. they were sold you know the perfect californian mansion under the blue sky with your car out the front and your and your verdant you know watered garden out there and these were unobtainable they were unobtainable to the the people in the white out pictures. It was this this illusion, this mirage. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, you know, I don't want to. It, it isn't only that. So, if me saying that means it sounds like that's all it was about, and it wasn't only about that. There's right. that's one reading, and and they were in full color. They weren't. It wasn't pumped up. It seemed like the colors pumped up because you've got used to the very thin uh, tonal scale of the white pictures. Right. But yeah, one one or two of the pictures did have a nostalgic yearning to me when I saw the, you know, the brand new brickwork or you know the the fresh concrete on the on the sidewalk there, which is what I used to ride my bike along as a kid. So yeah, there was a personal note in mm-hmm. that, definitely. You know, we're sort of coming up towards the present with approaching a body of work called the present. <laughs> um, does yellow run forever? The seasons, which is were your most recent exhibitions at at Pace. I mean, does Yellow Run Forever sort of jumps out a bit as, you know, something a bit more romantic and... More personal. Yeah, yeah, more personal, which is, it's a really, it's really beautiful. But are you, do you feel good about this chapter that you're in now and the output that you've had over the past, you know, 10 years? I mean, it's always a struggle. Yeah. And it always should be a should be a struggle, shouldn't it? Yeah, Sasha. Yeah, you know, if it isn't a struggle, I don't think you're doing something right. I find every day um, a struggle. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. 
definitely the last few years, yeah. You know, yeah, the work has taken, to, to, to sort of stand back a bit from it, the work has definitely taken a more personal um, slant in the last few years. Mm -hmm. You know, does yellow run forever? Just to be clear with people, it's um, pictures of my partner sending me asleep mostly. And we traveled around New Zealand on a vacation a long time ago and uh, she was jet lagged and, you know, I, I wake up early usually. And uh, so it's portraits of her asleep in various hotels and bed and breakfasts. And then these rainbows in Ireland. I went back to Ireland. It's important to know that all the rainbows are, are in are in Ireland, which obviously is found a kind of peace from from the conflict. So it's revisiting, you know, my old territory of, of uh, the Irish conflict in a way and finding the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And then there are these gold shops in New York. Um, it's very uh, loose it was, for you, right? It's really allowed yourself yeah. to really be loose and lyrical and poetic and in a way right. that you, you haven't really allowed yourself in other projects. And that ambiguous title, that, that yes. nonsense, I mean, does yellow run forever, you know, which comes from a song a friend of mine wrote, uh, you know, 40 years ago in the one going back to those garage punk days. He, he worked in a home for the mentally handicapped and he did the art class and one of his... One of his uh, his students there, his charges there, asked him that question, and I always remembered it as one of the most vital and powerful question. I know, and I loved it. It's looseness, you know. Does yellow run forever? Does love last? Is beauty mythical? You know, these these sort of questions, mm -hmm. these balances. Is should you be chasing the pot of gold mm -hmm. or not? Or should you be chasing love? Should you be chasing beauty? You know. So it's a, a personal turn in that way, and. Uh, I, I'm pleased with that. And then I did portraits of my mother right. as well. So it's my partner, my mother, um, as you said, you know, in some ways, a more personal tone to the work, you know, I'm getting older and mm -hmm. not got the fight in me that I used to have, maybe. On the other hand, you do get more introspective as you get older, mm -hmm. which I won't embarrass you by asking you if you recognize that. In I do, of course, not, absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> more honest, and, uh, I think, too, yeah. with yourself. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's a difficult time for documentary-type photography at the moment, you know, going out in the world and photographing other people, other people's lives is highly fraught and mm -hmm. highly conflicted right now. Mm -hmm. That, you know, to do American night-type work now, I'd probably be more criticized than I was then. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to recognize that and negotiate a way around that. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, it's a tragedy if people give up on that. And I hope they don't. But right now we're in a very sensitive moment. We are. And we're we're so, working. We're negotiating. It's a, it's a long negotiation. Right. Right. You just got to just check and double check mm -hmm. that you have been very respectful and cautious and everything. Mm -hmm. But I, it would be a tragedy, a tragedy, Sasha, if people stop going out and photographing the world and other lives. I agree. You know, it, it, would be, it would be a tragedy beyond measure if all we have is agreed staged portraiture of done by people within their own little silo i think that would be i, I couldn't awful. agree more you want to just tell people before we wrap up about what happened at oral because this is a wonderful oh, yeah. sort of coda to the icp show yeah so the only other time we did this the one other time we did our podcast was was to promote the icp show to to tell people about, but still it turns, the ICP show of new photography from the United States. That you century, curated, yeah. That I curated, that I was the guest curator of. 
It went on to Arles, to the Rencontre, the, uh, the, the famous festival of photography there. And it was wonderful. Yeah, we had to reinvent it. We didn't quite have the money to ship the whole show over there, but we, we, all the artists were extremely amenable and everyone came over. Everyone bar two artists who couldn't make it came over and we, had, we finally had the party we needed to. The show was beautiful. It's well received. It's in one of the best spaces there. And um, we finally got to celebrate it. The, the opening was a mob scene. It was very busy. That's great. Which is wonderful. Yeah. That makes, makes me very Wonderful happy. Experience. A lot of my favorite artists are in that show, including, of course, one I represent, yeah. Christine Potter, but a lot of yeah. my friends and work I have just so much love. I mean, a lot of the work that was in that show is the work, I'll just, you know, say personally that, you know, makes me want to get up and do the job I, I do, you know, so. Great. Happy to hear that. Yeah. So that yeah. was, and, yeah. I, 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 I want to definitely champion that exhibition i hope it goes to other places and for everyone who can't see it right now in oral the book but still it turns that was published by mac is available so get the book yeah the book is the book is great the book the books as as you know we don't want to go there but i've been very focused on books all my life mm -hmm. for 40 plus years yep. and it is that the life the life and legacy they have mm -hmm. is an exhibition is so transient yes and the book is absolutely so durable that way and you can curl up yeah, on your yeah. couch and go through it in your pace and there's no one pushing you and trying to get you to move out of the, move your big head out of the way or whatever. So. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so much for doing another episode with me and I love talking with you, yeah, thank you. and I look forward to lunch or dinner in the city after the summer and, and hanging out. So be love well. To. Love to. And thank I'll you. talk to you again soon. Okay. okay, thanks. Bye, Sasha. Bye. Bye, Paul. Photo with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. <laughs>